Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. Due to the graphic nature of this criminal's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of conspiracy, slavery, murder, and hanging that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In 1865, the Civil War was winding to a brutal finish. Most citizens of the northern states were hopeful the Union would triumph. But for Confederate sympathizers in the border states, like 41-year-old Mary Surratt, the prospect of a Union victory was harrowing. Both of Mary's sons were off fighting for the Confederacy when Confederate General Robert E. Lee surrendered to the North on April 9, 1865, marking the end of America's bloodiest war. While the other residents of Washington, D.C. celebrated, Mary Surratt mourned tucked away in her boarding house on H Street, wondering what would become of her sons, her beloved South, and the country as a whole. She didn't have to wonder long. Just a few days later, on April 14, 1865, an unexpected opportunity presented itself. John Wilkes Booth and his co-conspirators gathered together in Mary's boarding house parlor, as he told them of a scheme he had planned to put in motion that very night. He was going to kill the President of the United States, Abraham Lincoln. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture any women? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every week we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Sammy Nye. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And you're listening to Female Criminals. Today we'll continue exploring the life of Mary Surratt, one of the co-conspirators convicted of helping John Wilkes Booth in his plot to assassinate President Abraham Lincoln. 
If you want to listen to any previous episodes, including part one of Mary Surratt, you can find them and all of ParCast shows on your favorite podcast directory. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. Many of you have asked how you can help the show. If you enjoy the podcast, the best way to help is to leave us a five-star review. Last week, we explored Mary Surratt's life, the struggle she faced as the wife of an abusive, alcoholic business owner in Maryland, and how she had come to resent Lincoln and his war to end slavery, which would strip her family's business empire of its enslaved workers. However, Mary found hope when her youngest son, John Surratt Jr., introduced her to famed actor and Confederate Secret Service agent, John Wilkes Booth. Booth won Mary over with his belief that the South would rise again by targeting the man responsible for the Civil War, President Abraham Lincoln. This week, we'll dive deeper into the night of Lincoln's assassination and explore how Mary's decisions threw the country into mourning and eventually led to her execution. Mary had only known John Wilkes Booth for five months when he gathered his co-conspirators together in her boarding house parlor on April 14, 1865, with a plot to assassinate the president. But in those five months, Booth had become one of her son John Jr.'s closest friends and allies in the Southern cause. When Booth asked Mary to help him store and prepare items they would need in the assassination plot, Mary readily obliged. She rode to her tavern in nearby Surrattsville, Maryland, which she'd rented out to a retired policeman, John Lloyd. She told him to get her shooting irons ready and gave him a package from Booth containing a pair of binoculars and told him someone would be by to collect them later in the day. Mary also told another tenant, Louis J. Weichman, to prepare guns and ammunition that Booth had kept there. At 7 p.m. that night, Mary returned to her D.C. boarding house. John Wilkes Booth was meeting with his co-conspirators again. He had recruited a few of the men from his initial plot to kidnap Lincoln, Lewis Powell, George Atzerodt, and David Harold. Whether Mary was in the room for this discussion or not is debated, but we do know she spoke with Booth privately at least once more before the evening was through. She was definitely in on the plan. In the company of his co-conspirators, Booth didn't mince words. There wasn't enough time to repeat instructions. He told Harold and Powell to visit the home of Secretary of State William H. Seward and kill him where he lay. Meanwhile, Atzerodt was instructed to go to the Kirkwood House, a D.C. hotel where Vice President Andrew Johnson was staying. Booth told him, in no uncertain terms, to kill the Vice President. Once their deadly deeds were done, they would flee south to Surrattsville where they could collect the items Mary had stored there for them and then escape south into Confederate lands. Together, they could throw the entire federal government into chaos and end the reign of the tyrant they believed Lincoln to be. But there were protests among Booth's friends. Atzerodt had only agreed to kidnap the president. Murder was a different monster altogether and Harold made it known that he would only show Powell where to find the Secretary of State. If Powell was willing to kill the man, that would be his business. Booth was already down a loyal friend. Mary's son, John Jr., was still in New York spying for the Confederates, so he would have to make do with the skittish men before him. 
Booth threatened them into following the plan by revealing that only hours before, he had turned a signed letter over to a trusted friend containing a confession of their plans to kill the president and signed it with all of their names. Whether Atzerod and Harold participated or not, they would be implicated in the crime. According to research done by Wesleyan University and Tel Aviv University on the terrorists that carried out 9-11, group pressure can influence people to commit atrocities. Individuals submit themselves to the identity of the group, not necessarily because they believe in the cause, but because they believe in the people in the group, their friends, the people they've known long enough to trust and want to support. Booth used his friendship and shared history of collaboration to convince his co-conspirators to go along with his plan. They had all worked together to plan Lincoln's kidnapping, so they may as well work together to plan his assassination. Profilers at the CIA have also found that many group leaders use tangible threats to manipulate their groups into following them. In the case of the 9-11 terrorists, videotapes they had made prior to the attack were scheduled to be released afterward even if the men failed to follow through, essentially guaranteeing them punishment even if they had a change of heart. In the case of our co-conspirators, the letter John Wilkes Booth signed with their names became a point of no return. Booth's coercion seemed to work on Powell and Atzerodt, but Harold stuck to his guns. If killing Andrew Johnson was the order of the day, Powell would have to be the one to do it. A little after 8 p.m., Harold, Powell, and Atzerodt collected revolvers and large bowie knives and set out from Mary's boarding house to their various targets across Washington, D.C. Curiously, even though Booth had his own revolver, he chose to take a single-shot pistol to kill the president instead. Some historians, including James L. Swanson, believe his ego might have come between him and his goal a little bit. Perhaps he chose a single-shot pistol because it would have lent more bravado to his legacy as the tiny David who killed a Goliath. Others chalk it up to a misplaced sense of Southern chivalry. Some historians who have examined Booth's journals and letters believe Booth might have considered it in some way fairer to attack Lincoln with a single bullet. We might never know why he chose a gun that could have easily misfired or failed to fire at all, and which required almost a full minute to reload after one shot. The gun might kill the president, but it would offer him no defense in the following moments. The conspirators were already on borrowed time when the group of would-be assassins left Mary Surratt's home. The Lincolns were already picking up their guests for the play, Major Henry Rathbone and his fiancée Clara Harris. Booth hid out of sight in front of the Ford Theater and waited to confirm that the president was really going to watch the play. Once Lincoln was safely inside, Booth led his horse to the back entrance of the theater for a quick getaway and headed for a final drink at nearby Star Saloon. Across town, Harold led Powell to the house of Secretary of State William H. Seward. Seward had been in a carriage accident only days beforehand and was bedridden, oblivious to the threat that awaited him. Harold waited outside as Powell swindled his way in, convincing the butler and Seward's son and daughter that he was there to deliver medicine. But Seward's son was suspicious and reluctant to let Powell in. Powell drew his revolver. The gun misfired, and he instead bludgeoned Seward's son unconscious with it. As Seward's daughter screamed for help, 
Powell rushed to Seward's bed and stabbed him in the face. He tried to pierce the man's throat, but bandages already in place from the carriage accident prevented the blade from going in, saving Seward's life. Powell stabbed three other men fighting his way back out of the house and into the street, where he realized that Harold had already fled. Powell rushed away, back to Mary Surratt's boarding house. Ultimately, all four people he stabbed would survive, including William Seward. George Atzerodt never even attempted his part of the plot to kill Vice President Andrew Johnson. The thought of it was simply too much for him. Instead, he got drunk and threw his murder weapons away. Booth, however, never faltered. At 10 p.m., Booth walked right through the front doors of Ford Theater, casually waving to acquaintances as he made his way up the stairs toward the private viewing boxes. The Lincolns, Major Rathbone, and Clara Harris were already seated inside. Starlet Laura Keene was already deep into her 1,000th performance of the play Our American Cousin when Booth arrived at the private boxes and found them completely unguarded. It wasn't uncommon in those times for presidents and public figures to move freely without protection at almost any time of the day. However, on this occasion, Lincoln thought he had a guard with him. Unbeknownst to all, the guard had simply left his post at the door to visit the Star Saloon, the same saloon where Booth had been drinking just moments earlier. Lincoln seemed to be enjoying the play immensely that night. Throughout the performance, he playfully held Mary Todd's hand. Their guests overheard her ask him, what will Miss Harris think of my hanging on to you so? Lincoln replied, she won't think anything of it. These were the last words Lincoln would ever speak. Booth slipped into the box, barricaded the door against intrusion, raised his single-shot pistol, and fired. The muzzle flash and bang of the gun startled those who heard it. Major Rathbone rose to see what had happened and found Booth crouching in the dark. Rathbone moved to attack, but he was no match for the massive bowie knife poised in Booth's hand. Booth sliced into Rathbone's arm, shoved him out of the way, and prepared to leap toward the stage below. Rathbone reached for him, throwing his jump off balance, forcing Booth down onto the stage at a terrible, bone-breaking angle, fracturing Booth's left leg. Booth yelled his famous final line upon the stage, the Virginia state motto, Sic Semper Tyrannis, thus always to tyrants, and told the crowd that the South had been avenged. Most of the crowd was too startled and confused to know what had happened, but a Union major in the crowd climbed onto the stage to grab Booth as Mary Todd Lincoln began to scream. Booth limped quickly away on his broken leg toward the back of the theater, where he had stashed his horse, and rode away into the dark. We'll track the conspirators in the aftermath of the Lincoln assassination right after this. Now back to the story. Lincoln was still alive, barely. Though half a dozen surgeons and doctors were brought to help him, it was clear almost from the onset that the president would die. The bullet was simply too deep to remove, or so said the physicians by his side. Lincoln probably would have lived after John Wilkes Booth bullet slammed into his head, but the care he got immediately after the shooting was deadly. That's according to professor of surgery, Dr. Richard Frazier. Writing in the March issue of American Heritage magazine, Frazier said the bullet in Lincoln's brain probably would not have killed him. 
but a young doctor who treated Lincoln in a house opposite Ford's theater should never have gone fishing for the slug with his finger. That action by Dr. Charles Leo probably opened a blood vessel and expedited Lincoln's death. In a certain way, the fact that the president was still alive and so many had gathered to help him aided Booth in his getaway. Amidst the confusion and panic, in just under half an hour, Booth made his way to the Navy Yard Bridge where he crossed into Maryland. Even though the bridge was off limits to civilians after 9 p.m., for some reason, the guard let him through. The guard would also let David Harold cross an hour later. Booth and Harold made their way to Mary Surratt's Tavern in Surrattsville, where they collected the guns and binoculars Mary had stored there for them. They needed to move quickly to escape to the south. But by this point, Booth's broken leg was killing him. He had ridden 15 miles on it. There was only one place they could turn for help. Dr. Samuel Mudd, the man who had introduced John Wilkes Booth to John Surratt Jr. in the first place, lived nearby. They banged on his door, and the doctor made quick work of splinting his leg and making crutches for him. But they were losing precious time. In Washington, D.C., the police were already on the hunt for those who had killed the president and attacked Secretary of State Seward. And they already knew where to start looking. At 2 a.m. on April 15, 1865, police arrived to search Mary Surratt's boarding house. There are a thousand theories as to why her house was targeted first. But the simple explanation seems to be that Booth had committed the crime in the theater district, an area where he and John Jr. were both well-known. Eyewitnesses told police that the men were often seen together there. On top of that, the federal government and the police already had files on John Jr. for disloyalty, so it would have been a logical place to start. In either case, the police were simply there to follow the lead about John Jr. and question Mary about his whereabouts. She told them that John Jr. had been in Canada for the past two weeks. She casually withheld the fact that she had spoken with Booth and left a package with his name on it at her tavern in Surrattsville only the day before. Since it doesn't seem that Mary and Booth had met anywhere other than the boarding house, there were no eyewitness reports connecting the two, so the police initially believed her story. Or at least, they realized there wasn't enough evidence to accuse her of participating in the crime. Then, at 7.22 a.m. on April 15, 1865, Lincoln took his final breath, ushering the North and America's allies across the world into a period of mourning. Just two and a half hours later, Andrew Johnson was sworn in as President of the United States. The manhunt for John Wilkes Booth lasted 12 days. He earned a $100,000 price on his head and finally died in a firefight with the New York Cavalry on April 26th. But Mary Surratt's tale of woe was a much more protracted affair. On April 17, 1865, one of Mary's D.C. neighbors revealed to authorities that Booth and his associates had visited Mary on the night of Lincoln's assassination. Federal soldiers surrounded Mary's boarding house and began a thorough search. They found weapons and bullet molds, and also pictures of Booth and Confederate President Jefferson Davis hidden behind family photographs. These things alone, however, were only circumstantial. At that time, buying a gun was as easy as buying eggs from the market. Booth was a known friend of John Jr., as well as a popular celebrity, so it wasn't altogether that unusual for the Surratt family to have a picture of him. 
and being a Confederate sympathizer was not, now that the war was over, a punishable offense. But then, the police lucked into the discovery of a lifetime. As they were arresting Mary and escorting her out of her boarding house, a familiar face appeared at her door. The man wore a hat and facial hair to hide his face, but underneath the disguise was a man Mary had seen dozens of times before, Lewis Powell, the co-conspirator who had attacked Secretary of State William H. Seward as he lay in his bed. Police asked the man who he was. Powell replied that he was just a laborer, hired to help the widow Surratt with something in her home. A few feet away, another police officer asked Mary if she knew the man at her door, and she replied that she didn't. Their mismatched answers prompted the officer to arrest Powell as well. This discrepancy would later be used against Mary in court to prove that she knew about and collaborated in the assassination plot. When news of Lincoln's death and Mary's arrest reached Elmira, New York, where John Jr. Surratt was working as a Confederate courier, he dropped everything and fled to Montreal. That's right, Mary's beloved son, the man who had introduced her to John Wilkes Booth in the first place, vanished, nearly without a trace, leaving his mother to stand trial alone. He would later flee to the United Kingdom, then to Rome, and finally to Egypt before he was successfully arrested two years later in 1867 and returned to the United States. But he would never see any time in prison for his part in the conspiracy against Lincoln. John Jr. waited until the statute of limitations against the Lincoln co-conspirators had lapsed before he talked about his part in the plot to kidnap Lincoln. Even though he had been away at the time of the assassination, his association in the kidnapping plot legally made him guilty in Lincoln's murder as well. Many historians believe that had John Jr. given himself up, Mary Surratt's punishment may have been severely reduced, if not eliminated entirely. Instead, Mary Surratt and Samuel Mudd, the doctor who helped Booth while he was trying to flee south, were held in a private wing of Old Capitol Prison, where the Supreme Court is located in modern times. The other co-conspirators were held on the ironclad ships, the Montauk and the Saugus. We're not sure why Mary and Samuel Mudd were held in a different place from the others. It could have to do with the lack of evidence of their active participation in the plot against Lincoln. Shortly after her 42nd birthday, in May of 1865, Mary was transferred to the Washington Arsenal. Her treatment while imprisoned suggests that, at the time, the judicial system simply wasn't sure what to do with a female prisoner attached to such a violent and important crime. Her cell was larger than her co-conspirators, and she was not handcuffed, as they were. But there was debate about whether they should bind her head inside a padded canvas sack like the other prisoners to prevent her from attempting suicide. When she began her period, she was given a rocking chair and allowed to visit with 22-year-old daughter Anna, but no medication to help her deal with the pain. The press were particularly brutal on Mary. Pictures were posted in the newspapers criticizing her small mouth and dark eyes, which journalists concluded clearly proved she was a criminal. The study of facial features, particularly as it relates to character and morality, is called physiognomy, a pseudoscience which sociologists, biologists, psychologists, and computer analysts have been struggling to prove and disprove for the past 150 years. However, the actual practice of physiognomy finds its roots all the way back in ancient Greece, 
Aristotle adamantly believed that a person's moral character could be determined by studying their outward appearance. In the early and mid-1800s, the practice reached its peak of popularity in the Western world, as physiognomy was used to abuse or prove the innocence of accused people in Victorian England and the United States. Mary was lambasted in the press for her appearance, since so little of her story or history was known before her involvement in the assassination plot against Lincoln, many 19th-century journalists had condemned her before evidence had even been brought against her in a court of law. Speaking of court of law, the legality of the actual circumstances of her trial are still widely debated today, particularly because the decision was made to try all eight people arrested in association with Lincoln's assassination by military tribunal instead of in a civil court. This essentially meant that instead of being tried by a jury of their peers, they would be judged by military personnel who were acting both as judge and jury. The tribunal that would decide the fate of Mary Surratt and the other men accused of conspiracy was made up of nine army officers who were legally allowed to dictate their own procedures for how the trial would be handled. Historian Edward Steers Jr. believes the procedures were generally comparable to what the defendants would have faced in civil court. The major difference, however, is that unlike in a civil trial, guilt only required a two-thirds majority, not a unanimous vote. The trial began on May 9, 1865, less than a month after the assassination. Mary Surratt, Lewis Powell, David Harold and George Atzerodt were charged in relation to the actual assassination plot against Lincoln, while four others were charged by association to the conspiracy. All eight suspects were tried together, but Mary Surratt received small special treatments as the sole female defendant. While the other defendants were handcuffed throughout the trial, she was not. She also sat apart from the other defendants and was allowed to carry a fan and veiled bonnet to hide herself from view. But that's where the niceties ended. She was charged with aiding, abetting, counseling, harboring, and concealing John Wilkes Booth and the other seven conspirators. She pled not guilty, as did all of the other defendants. After this break, we'll return to the trial of Mary Surratt. Now back to the story. Mary Surratt had difficulty finding attorneys willing to represent her. She attempted to hire attorney Reverdy Johnson, but objections were made against him because during the 1864 presidential election, he had refused to support mandatory loyalty oaths for voters. Johnson did agree to mentor the two young, inexperienced attorneys that were eventually brought in to defend Mary in May of 1865. Their defense relied heavily on tearing down the testimony given by witnesses against Mary and trying to separate her from the known reputation of her Confederate courier son, John Jr. John Lloyd, the retired policeman to whom she had rented her tavern in Surrattsville, became one of the prosecution's key witnesses against her. And yet, when probed, some curious facts emerged. Remember how we said that Mary had ridden to Surrattsville under the pretense of collecting debts? Well, that part turned out to be true. Several witnesses were called that had met Mary Surratt to pay debts they owed to her on those days. Anna Surratt also testified that the photos of Booth and Davis found in Mary's boarding house were hers. She had always had a crush on the actor John Wilkes Booth, as many of us have crushes on famous actors today. 
And the lawyers argued the fact that Mary Surratt had not identified Lewis Powell when he came to the boarding house in disguise was due to her poor eyesight. She wasn't trying to deceive the officers. Anna, two tenants of the boarding house, as well as a former servant and a former slave, came forward to testify that Mary Surratt could barely see. The slave and servant also revealed that on multiple occasions, Mary had provided food to Union soldiers in need, implying that she was not, in fact, a Confederate sympathizer. There is some historical evidence to suggest that at least part of the testimony the prosecution gave against Mary Surratt was suborned, meaning that the witnesses had been pressured to lie under oath. The evidence against Mary, however, was also very compelling. Not only had she housed several of the co-conspirators at various times throughout the war, the prosecution was able to find proof that John Wilkes Booth had paid for the carriages Mary used to get between her home in D.C. and her businesses in Surrattsville. And the court simply couldn't forget that Mary had refused to identify Lewis Powell when he came to her door the night of her arrest. The deck was stacked against Mary. Not only did the military tribunal only need a two-thirds majority to convict her, but conspiracy laws at the time stated that even if a single person carried out a crime, anyone found to have conspired with them was also guilty of that crime. Essentially, even though her charges did not actually include murder, she would be tried and punished as if she had committed the assassination herself. She was looking at a possible death sentence. There's also some debate about whether the court was trying to punish John Surratt Jr. through his mother's conviction. Testimony from servants, boarding house tenants, and others had heavily implicated John Jr. in the plot to kidnap Lincoln before he left for New York. Even though his knowledge of the later assassination plot was limited, the same conspiracy laws used against Mary would have applied to him as well. Since John Jr. couldn't be found, it's possible the prosecutors doubled down on Mary's punishment instead. When the trial ended on June 28, 1865, all eight defendants were found guilty. Mary was convicted of aiding, abetting, counseling, and concealing Booth and the other co-conspirators. Two days later, on June 30th, six of the nine judges sentenced Mary Surratt, Lewis Powell, David Harold, and George Atzerodt to hang for their crimes. Samuel Mudd and the three other co-conspirators were sentenced to prison terms of varying lengths. Among the defendants, the only one to come to Mary's defense was Lewis Powell. When he heard that she had been sentenced to hang with the others, he loudly proclaimed her innocence to anyone who would listen. Unfortunately, it was too little too late. When Mary's sentence was publicly announced on July 5th, the reaction was mixed. Even though so many in the press had called for her head on a platter, so to speak, the revelation that she would actually hang shocked the nation. We should remember that at the time, in the 1800s, a woman's identity was intrinsically linked to her roles as mother and wife. Historian Kate Clifford Larson believes there was also a strong bias that existed against the notion that women were capable of taking part in such violent crimes. Many people at the time were more willing to believe that she had simply been protecting her son by lying for him and refusing to implicate him in the plot. Women like Mary challenged social conventions at the time. Even today, it's sometimes difficult for people to believe that women can take part in violent crimes. 
modern crime statistics over the last 30 years do show that women are far more likely to commit nonviolent crimes, like forgery, stealing, or drug possession, than they are to commit violent crimes like murder and assault. The reason for this, however, lies in the motivation behind the crime. A study by Queensland University found that while male convicts were motivated by jealousy, thrill, money, hate, and revenge, female convicts were typically motivated by personal gain and love. In Mary's case, she seems to have been motivated by love for her sons and for the South. Both of her sons chose to fight for the Confederate cause, and they were both at risk of never coming home if she didn't help the rebel cause in their last-ditch effort to destabilize the Union. They could be imprisoned or executed in the aftermath of the war. That doesn't condone her actions, of course. She was mingling with known Confederate sympathizers and white supremacists, and she was a pro-Confederate slave owner herself. Her role in the assassination was definitely politically motivated to some extent. Her worry for her sons just helps us understand how Mary could reach the extreme conclusion that the murder of a public figure was the only solution. When news of Mary's execution was made public in 1865, there was an initial sense of righteousness to the news and gossip about her in the North. During the 1860s, there had been backlash against aberrant women, basically women who acted against their social identities as wives and mothers. Women who drank, gambled, and turned down marriage proposals were sometimes written in unflattering terms in the press. Mary, as a convicted criminal, seemed to exemplify that kind of aberrant woman. But just as quickly, those traditional expectations for women put an end to the celebration. People across the nation began petitioning to have Mary's sentence commuted to time in prison. Americans simply couldn't accept that this woman had played an active role in Lincoln's murder. As time has passed and additional material, including letters and journals, have been found and examined, historians have extrapolated that Mary simply must have known what was happening and that she did, in fact, participate by storing weapons and supplies for the men and by providing them lodging. She hated the North as much as any of them did. Much of the evidence seems to justify the court's decision to hang her in July of 1865. But at the time, a federal execution of a woman had never happened before in the United States. Her hanging would be the first. Five of the nine judges who had convicted her and sentenced her to hang later tried to petition President Andrew Johnson to stay her execution, as did her daughter Anna. We don't know if the judge's reversal was in response to public backlash or because they personally regretted their decision to hang her. However, when the execution order and order of clemency both arrived on his desk, President Johnson ignored the order of clemency and signed the execution order instead. He's reported to have said, quote, she kept the nest that hatched the egg, end quote. On July 6, 1865, Mary learned of her fate. As an act of kindness, the prison doctor gave her wine and medication for her period cramps. Mary's daughter, Anna, brought two priests into her cell to read her final rites and take her final confession. They would remain with her throughout the night. On July 7th, Mary put on a black mourning dress, bonnet, and veil. Her hands and ankles were bound by manacles. She was the first of the conspirators to leave the Washington arsenal and the first led onto the gallows. 
but she was so afraid her priests and two soldiers had to help her up the stairs. She was led to the so-called seat of honor at the far right of the gallows. A crowd of 1,000 people gathered to watch the execution. The conspirators were allowed a few moments with holy men from their respective religions. Then their arms and legs were bound with white cloth. Lewis Powell used his final words to declare, Mrs. Surratt is innocent. She doesn't deserve to die with the rest of us. End quote. Nooses were brought down around the necks of Mary Surratt, Lewis Powell, David Harold, and George Atzerott. Then, Secret Service officers came forward to cover the defendants' heads in white sacks and guide them forward toward the edge of the platform. Mary inched forward. Her last words were, quote, Please don't let me fall. End quote. As the captain overseeing the event clapped his hands, four soldiers kicked out the gallows supports. In the end, Mary's nervousness gave her the swiftest death of them all. Her toes were barely on the platform when she fell. Though the fall didn't snap her neck, she died almost instantly. The other men were not as lucky. It would take almost five minutes for them to suffocate to death, struggling at the end of their ropes. They, like their victim, Abraham Lincoln, were not afforded a quick, painless death. A century and a half after Mary Surratt's hanging, female executions are still rare in the United States. Since 1976, only 16 women have been executed for their crimes. As the first woman executed by the U.S. federal government, Mary Surratt has found a complicated and complex place in American history. Neither saint nor demon, her story is still worth exploring and remembering. In her own unfortunate way, she's contributed to the demystification of women, proving that in the right circumstances, even dutiful mothers can become violent criminals. The first step to correcting a problem is acknowledging it and examining its roots. Hopefully, with the help of stories like that of Mary Surratt, we'll make our way into a better world without bloodshed. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. You can find more Female Criminals and all of ParCast podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. Many of you have asked how to help the show. And if you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Female Criminals is written by Jordan Trapier and stars Sammy Nye and Vanessa Richardson. 